Hello, Andy here. Thanks for tuning in to this exclusive interview as part of Down the Line, a Secret Army podcast. Today, AJ is talking to Austin Ruddy, the principal designer of Secret Army. Austin created the authentic and memorable Condide restaurant sets for both Series 1 and 2, including the all-important front of house and the clandestine back rooms. Also, Kessler's office at the Avenue Louise, Dr. Kelderman's surgery, and the Colbert family home. Austin had a long career as a production designer from the 60s to the 70s. Some of his early production credits included drama series such as Dixon of Doc Green, Adam Adamant Lives and The Borderers, as well as popular comedy series like The Marriage Lines and Harry Worth. By the early 70s, Ruddy had become a trusted designer and continued to work on hit comedy series such as All Gas and Gators and Steptoe and Son, and several boundary-pushing episodes of the BBC Two drama The Lotus Eaters, including the infamous Victor's Retellus directed A Kind of Treason, with its bizarre, beach-based dream sequences. In 1972, Secret Army's producer, Jerry Glaster, chose Ruddy to be the first designer to work on Colditz, building the Colditz castle sets, bringing him back the following year to reliably kick off Series 2 as well. In 1975, he was recruited by Terence Dudley to start off apocalyptic drama series Survivors, designing for the opening instalment The Fourth Horseman and Episode 4, Corn Dolly. In complete contrast, that same year, he also designed three episodes of The Goodies. He went on to create the memorable Jungle and the Tom Baker Face Mountain for Doctor Who's The Face of Evil, before Glaister brought him back to the Second World War once again to ensure that Secret Army's design was as authentic as possible. In total, Ruddy was a production designer on eight episodes of Secret Army, and looking back today, he counts it as one of his very favourite programmes to work on. Some of his other career highlights include Top of the Pops, Pen Marrick, When the Boat Comes In, Grange Hill, and the first Joan Hicks and Miss Marple, The Body in the Library. Since leaving the BBC in 1990, Austin returned to his first love, painting, and continues to work as a freelance artist in North Yorkshire. So today I'm joined by very special guest, Austin Ruddy, and it's really lovely to have you here today. Thank you for joining us on the show. How are you, Austin? I am very well, thank you. And and yourself? Yeah, I'm also very well. We've finally got some sun here in Manchester, which is always a joy. I thought the sun was always out in Manchester. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it's famous for. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, it's so lovely to have you on the show today and, and be able to talk about your fantastic work on Secret Army. But I would love to start with something that came up when we were on the telephone, which is you had some personal connections to people who were members of the Belgian resistance, didn't you? I would love to hear that story of your travels after university. Right, okay. Well, it goes back a long way now, and it's um something very dear to my heart. I, I remember I did um I worked with producer Jerry Glaister on Colditz, and I think that during the uh, working on Colditz, I related to him the story of my meeting some wonderful Belgian people. Uh, The story was that my friend, a friend and I, who we'd just finished being students, we were penniless, and he had bought a a clapped-out old Land Rover. And we, the plan was we would have a two-man tent and we would camp and we would uh, tour Belgium, Luxembourg, the, the Ardennes, 
and into Germany and sort of maybe a bit of France as well. However, the Land Rover was um, not very well at all. (laughs) And on the way back, uh, we were penniless and we'd stopped umpteen times and tried to fix the motor and the the thing finally died on us in a small archetypal Belgian town, all made of stone, in the marketplace, which was a cobblestone marketplace, and there's a huge church to the side of it. And we were sitting there really fed up. The car had died. We were broke. It was evening time. We were hungry. We were fed up. And there was a knock on the window of the car, and there was a little Belgian man standing there who said, oh, English. Uh, we said, yes. And he said, um, I, I was with the Belgian Free Air Force in World War II. And um, he asked us what the problem was. And he said, oh, no, 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 you must come back to my house. And we were led to this um, beautiful 18th century, very French house made of stone up a little side road quite near the marketplace. And we met his wife, Betty, and their two daughters, Chantal and Colette. And the um, uh, we were treated like royalty. We were scruffy and dirty and whatever, and exhausted and what have you. And um, they, they Betty laid a beautiful table and out came a bottle of wine and glasses and she cooked a wonderful meal. And we had a wonderful evening together. And this is absolutely wonderful. As far as he was concerned, the Brits couldn't do a thing wrong. We They, they were so pro-British. And during the course of the evening, they started relaying their dislike for, I'm afraid, for the Germans. And the reason for this was, he said that uh, Betty and her family and her father in particular had been members of something affiliated to the resistance during World War II. However, what um, the, the uh, thing was that they were they, they were part of a passing on shot down Allied airmen. They um, related the story to me how they had four, uh, 1.4 American airmen in the attics, whom had the cover was that they were Belgian military who'd been invalided out because they were deaf, deafened by the noise. And they'd been taught deaf and dumb language in, in Belgium. And uh, they were all in the attic of the, the house. The house was apparently raided by the Gestapo or the, the army. And, and they thought, well, this is it. We, we've really had it. What happened was that the, um, they spread out all over the house, ransacking the place and looking. One of them went up to the attic opened the attic door and came eyeball to eyeball with the four American airmen. Both parties stood there looking at each other and thinking, oh, God, you know, this is it. Eventually, the German soldier said, I'm afraid we are all but small men, and closed the hatch and, and went away. Incredible. And they couldn't they couldn't believe it. Yeah. And the... Uh, he came downstairs and said to the guy in charge, no, it's all clear, fine, and they got off. Eventually, they did chase and collapse Betty's father. He related how he was um, hiding in a, a pigsty full of pigs and when they caught him and how they had knocked all his teeth out with a butt of a gun. And the, this wonderful family who I kept in touch with for many years went back there a number of times to see them and we, we wrote to each other. And the next day he took me to the nearest other small town on the River Meuse. And the, above the town was a big, very, dom, dom, the town was dominated by this very dark castle. And we went to the castle and he showed us what the Gestapo had built in the dungeons there. And they built these um, things like 
dog kennels. There were a whole row of them in concrete. They were, I guess, about two feet wide mm-hmm. and about four feet high. Mm-hmm. And he said they were designed so that you couldn't lie down in them and you couldn't stand up in them. And there was an iron gate on the front, and this is where they kept the prisoners. Yeah, that's so brutal, isn't it? It is. It's incredible, isn't it? As I say, we kept in touch with them for a long time, and they they were very dear people. They they were lovely. And I remember relaying this story to Jerry, so I don't know whether it's where the, the seeds from Secret Army actually were sown, but that was how I met these people actually related to to the a lifeline as it were yeah and they she betty described herself as a courier mm-hmm. yes so that was uh that was how i met these these wonderful people yeah i think one thing that i've learned through chatting with people like yourself and the more i rewatch secret army the more i feel like that i don't know that care and the, the connections to people involved really shows through you can really feel how much you know everyone involved in the production like yourself really cared to make sure these stories were told yeah. you know yeah. so authentically so um yeah. 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 Um, but thank you for, for sharing the story uh, of those incredible yeah. people. How how kind they yeah. were to you when you really needed it that day in Belgium. They were brilliant. They, I think they must have seen in us something of the airman that got shot down. Yeah, maybe. Uh, because we were, we were way, way from home. We had no way of getting back. We were really stuck. Yeah. And, um, and they really took us under their wing. Uh, and they were just so kind, you know. And uh, we got to know the various people in the town through them and um yeah yeah it was a great great privilege to meet them and a great privilege to be involved with the secret army mm. and i think when you go traveling it's it's that kindness in humanity that is very uh, wonderful to experience isn't it it is yes yeah. yes indeed yes yes yeah. and so when you came back from your travels um did you then go into straight into work in television or was there some other parts in between before you started that career I studied um, painting and um, printmaking and art history. And when I'd qualified and and left, (laughs) what do you do for a living? (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't want to go into teaching. I thought publishing was the answer. I wanted to get into, uh, I loved art books. And I I went to work for a famous publisher in London. And um, I soon discovered that, in fact, that the money was awful and there was no future whatsoever. And I wasn't part of the family. So I started looking around and one day I met a road sweeper and um, he was a a guy with a barrow and mops, uh, brooms and buckets and things. He was sweeping up all the leaves in the side of the road. And I said to him, you know the area very well. Is there there a a labour exchange, as they were called then, around here? And he said, oh, there's a very posh one around the corner. And so I went around the corner and found this place and and it was wonderful. It had settees and armchairs and constables on the wall and turners and reflexes like that. Not what you think of, is it, when you think of a labour exchange? It was a, a very professional one, you know, and they were uh, reading copies of Country Life and the Times and the Times, <laughs> finan- Financial Times and this kind of thing. And I explained to the guy what I wanted and what, what I was trying to do. And he, um, he, I think I must have seemed to him to be a, a terrific challenge because he eventually he sent me to other publishers and it was always the same story, you see. And I, um, uh, I was getting a bit despondent about all this getting nowhere. And then he sent me a little piece of paper saying that the BBC was starting a small course for training designers in television. And um, would I be interested? And I thought, well, I'm going to have to do something about it because otherwise he won't bother with me anymore. He's offered me 
something. So I will apply for it. And I applied for it. And I got an interview. And I went the day for the interview to meet a man who I, I didn't know, who was actually a very famous industrial designer called Richard Levin. Right. He'd, he'd designed, uh, he'd worked on the Festival of Britain and um, and designed things like the material on tube trains, seats, and this kind of thing of furniture and this sort of professional designer. And he said they were starting a course up and what do you know about television? And I, I thought, well, look, I don't, I, I can't stand a Captain Hell's chance of getting on this. There were very professional people coming up. The commissioner at the door said to me, oh, they've interviewed hundreds of people and you really want to try and get on that to start a BBC Two and all this sort of thing. And they, I said, well, I don't know anything about television. And they said, well, have you designed any sets or have you got any models of sets or drawings of sets? And I said, no, I've never designed anything. And he said, well, what do you do? I said, painting. So he said, well, and I brought some paintings along. So we put them all around his office. We chatted about paintings and the whole thing. Um, he said, well, do, do you like television? And I said, yes. And uh, oh, yes, of course. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I then said something which I suppose I shouldn't have said. I said, for some mysterious reason, I said, well, there's always room for a bit of bad taste, isn't there? And he thought that was incredibly funny and started roaring with laughter. <laughs> and um, he, he said, well, how much notice do you have to give? How much are you earning at this place? And I told him. And he said, how do you manage to live on that? And I said, I can't live on that. You know, that's a problem. So he said to me, when can you start? And he he just rushed off out the rushed off out the office, came back waving a piece of paper and said, "Look, fill in this form, give it to my secretary. We start on the twenty third of February uh, with the course. If you're interested, and I said, "Oh yes, rather." So it's marvelous. So that's how I got into yeah. television by not knowing a thing about it. And he said, <laughs> I discovered later that the reason was that most people working in in television then had come from the theatre uh, or from films. Right. And he said his thesis was that television was a completely different, separate medium. Yeah. Nothing to do with the theatre, nothing to do with films. It, it, it was a medium in its own right. So I didn't know that at the time, but he, he wanted, he was looking for people who hadn't worked in theatre and films. So there were architects, there were interior designers, there were furniture designers and all this illustrators or all and me, a painter, came along. So I, I didn't know this at the time, but it was just a stroke of luck. And it was a case of being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And unknown to me. And I couldn't believe it, the, the money that they offered to start with. I could afford three meals a day. Yeah. Buy myself new clothes. Yeah. yeah. Like that's that. incredible. And um, yeah. And that's how I started. Yeah. And the course started. And I shared, I shared an office with a young sandy-haired Geordie designer called Ridley Scott. Oh, no way. <laughs> and um, he, he, I wonder what happened to him. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah I haven't heard of that name. <laughs> yeah, and um, he, he, he stayed a bit and then he left to do it to make commercials. Off he went and I stayed and I'd never had such a secure job in my life, you know. Wow, that's incredible. And um, so that's that's how I got into television in the first place. Yeah. By sheer luck and just being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, it just goes to show, isn't it? You know, you never know what could be around the corner or what meeting a person could do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
I hope listeners will forgive me if I um, skip ahead a little bit, because uh, I know in other interviews you've spoken about other things in your career, such as work on Doctor Who and survivors and things like that. Yeah. But being a Secret Army podcast, I'll skip ahead to that if that's okay. Yep, absolutely fine, yeah. I, I guess the origins of you starting work on Secret Army would come from working initially on Colditz, is that right? Yes, I think so, yes, yes, yes. Is that where you first met Jerry? The, yes. Uh, no, I think I'd worked with Jerry Glaster beforehand. Uh, I can't remember what, but I, I think it was before Colditz. Right. But what, one of the, uh, the great things about uh, working on something of this period was was the research you had to do. Yeah. And uh, that was fascinating. And, and I, was, I was interested in the subject anyway, because uh, working, working in television, you would be called upon to design, whether it's a light entertainment program, a talks program, a situation comedy or drama. And of course, most of us wanted to be on the drama side of things. With um, Jerry, Jerry, the productions he did weren't what, what you would call big budget in any way, shape or form. Uh, they were very tight budgets. And I said to him, look, before I begin, I, I want to get it absolutely right in honour of these people, especially yeah. people that I'd known who probably were watching it. And I need to go to Belgium. So I need to go there with my camera and take lots of photographs. And uh, I offered him part of my budget back if I could go to, to Belgium. So I did. And I went there and I took thousands of photographs and did lots of sketches of things. Now, as a production designer, what happens is that you're one of the first people on the programme in the first place. Mm-hmm. A great big pile of scripts would arrive and you'd have to you know, go through them and try and analyse what was what and what was needed in them. And as the lead designer on it, uh, what I would do is design the stock sets, which would follow out throughout, throughout the series, and then other designers would alternate and use those. And um, the Condide was was the, the big thing that was um, everything was done. You see, to um, to a very tight schedule, mm. and you had a, a date. So many thousand or twelve, fifteen hundred. I can't remember now man hours to spend plus the money there's quite big sums of money in reality and what would you'd have dates to meet deadlines the drawings had to be in with the carpenters and painters and the construction people by a certain date otherwise they wouldn't have enough time to do the job and i was scratching my head thinking about the uh, cafe condide which was the first big major set to go in and i went to belgium with the um, script editor john brayson Mm -hmm. And John and I toured around and had a great time researching various things. But I was still stuck for the Café Condide. The drawing dates were getting closer and closer. Yeah. Drawings due. And I was getting a bit panicky about it because I still hadn't got it in my mind exactly what it should look like or about it. I'd been around Brussels. I'd looked in lots of cafes. Most of them were chrome and plate glass and very, very updated at the time. And I had I couldn't find anything that was at all looking from that period. But on the very last day uh, in Brussels, I stumbled across this small cafe in a small back courtyard place. And there it was. I couldn't believe it. It was it hadn't changed. The the elderly couple who owned it, uh, I, I said, could I just take some photographs of the interior? And they said, yeah, fine, you know. And I then went back to the hotel and said, John Brayson and Frank Pendlebury, the production manager, who was the money bags, <laughs> um, can you come and um, come and look at this? I think this is just fantastic. I've just found the Condide. And we went round there and it was absolutely wonderful. You know, the 
I, I said, you know, you, you chat to the proprietors about it, and I'll um, I'll take more pictures, you know, and details. And the it then transpired that the elderly couple who had been there since before the war, I think, said that they were retiring, they'd had enough, and all of the other places were much more modern than theirs and whatever. And I said, well, you're going to retire, and what's going to happen to it? don't know. And so I said, well, what about all the furniture in here? And they said, it'll go. And I said, we'd like to buy it. We want to buy the entire cafe, all the tables, all the chairs, all the advertisements, all the things that you can think of. That, that little game of darts that the Belgians play with in a dartboard about nine inches diameter, mm-hmm. the version of Shove Hapney boards, all this kind of thing. like to buy it all. And they couldn't believe their luck. And I couldn't believe my luck. Yeah, I bet. We, we sent a removal lorry across and <laughs> we bought the whole lot from them. Yeah. And um, uh, and they and transported it back to this country. So I had all the furniture uh, for the set and it was the genuine article. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't get much better than that, can you? <laughs> no. It was rather good because at the time, everyone was doing programmes about World War Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the and so all the hire companies had hired out all their French furniture and all this kind of thing. It was very hard to come by. So that's how the Condide started. Yeah. And I got back to England and we with the photographs and the drawings and we drew like mad and got the drawings in and they built for us the Condide. Yeah, that's fantastic. And when it comes to designing spaces like the back room in the Candides, I really love that too. It just again looks very authentic and really feels like a real room that you can walk into but Thank you. what was your approach to designing the back room at the Candide? Well the the the, the whole thing about the, the interesting point of the architecture there is it's got its own personality. Yeah. It's very French and Dutch influenced uh-huh. and the um, for instance uh, we were talking about things like the door handles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't remember ever seeing a door knob. All, all of the they didn't do door knobs. They did door handles everywhere, and they were a different height to ours. Oh. And the the doors themselves, because of the metric measurements, were slightly different proportion to to. British doors. So that was kind of interesting. The windows are different. We have sash windows in this country, you know, up and down sort of sash windows. They they have casement windows. All of these things you look for because they are all specific to that style and, and they give it character. Yeah. So that was a really interesting point of view. They all the door functions the same thing no matter what country it's in, but they're all different. Yeah. And that's so interesting. Um, I think if you were doing a, a more casual rewatch of Secret Army, you might not notice it, but because me and Andy have been going through the show episode by episode and really watching each one, each one closely, we we started to notice that some of the door handles, like in the Colbert household and in the um, Avenue Louise office, yeah. were kind of, yeah were higher, and we were like, oh, I wonder yeah. if that's a thing. So it's really interesting to hear that from you. <laughs> and, and then, of course, when it's uh, having broken down the script to all the sets that we we need and trying to work out how much they cost to, to make them. The great thing then is uh, you you ask the producer who, who are the cast going to be. And then there's a, there's a book called Spotlight and you can look up in Spotlight and see the actors. And you go, oh, I know that person. Yeah. And that gives you a clue how they're going to act the part. So if you're doing their interior, oh. 
this kind of thing, you know. And um, yeah, the um, then I would go to the outside rehearsals, the uh, the read through. The, the the read through is the first time all of the actors are together, and the um, the director and the production staff are there, and they all just read through without doing too much acting their parts, and it's all timed and this kind of thing. And you you watch the actors, and you kind of know how they're going to play the part and what what, how, what they will make of it sort of thing. So that's that's how um, then then it graduates to outside rehearsals, which are where the, the sets are taped on the floor and the tea chests and boxes and old chairs are put in to, to represent furniture. And you, you then go to the outside rehearsal. Then you go to, you have the technical people come along, the lighting director and all of these people and this, and then you might have to move some of the sets around in the studio to make a bit more room for this or a bit more space for that or a bit, bit extra here. But all the time you're working very closely with the director because the movements in the set are important to where things like doors are and windows are and what are they going to do in the in the set and where are they going to move to and what have you that's the kind of interesting thing I learned a lot about acting that's that's something I've never come across before and about how they would approach it from a dramatic point of view a scene you know and um, and of course there were four different directors to contend with in the first four episodes um yeah um, of course yeah um and they all had their their different needs for the for the stock sets which they would inherit so all that has to be taken into consideration yeah and is that something Uh, you found one of the more challenging aspects of the job is you know you might have say kenna five saying oh i want this i want the set to be able to do that and then yeah i can't think of another director of those four actually who would it be like uh, maybe paul annett but you know or something like that yeah yeah absolutely you're spot on there that's exactly that they, they oh, I would like it to be so and so so and so <laughs> and this kind of thing and whatever you know and you're just there like oh no <laughs> yeah and you say well hang on a second also we're at the top of our budgets at the moment yeah and especially if you've sacrificed some unless you unless you can persuade Jerry to give more money yeah <laughs> you, you know you uh, we won't get it. Yeah. And um, there's, so there's an awful lot of budgeting to do. Yeah. And maybe compromising or appeasing. Yeah. Well, you know, there's all the manners, the, the, the carpenters and painters and mm-hmm. what have you. And then there's the money for hiring props or buying props and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So in the end, it's all got to balance out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jerry was pretty hot on that. Yeah. <laughs> but he was, he was a good, I've got great respect for him. He's a great, great producer. Uh, we, we got on very well together. Do you tell me um, a bit more about what it was like to work with him? Well, he he was he was a very relaxed, uh, very easygoing uh, fella, and he, he he gave you plenty of scope, plenty of room to ideas and whatever you know. He he just held the whole thing together, you know, um, because obviously he had all the actors and directors to, uh, directors coming in and out of his office every you know five minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> demanding this complaining about that sort of thing <laughs> and can you um recall what it was like to work with those so you mentioned there four different directors in the first season um what what kind of I don't know styles or things would they come and approach you or ask from you that's difficult because they you get to know how how they work uh, and you have to sometimes you have to wring it out of them because <laughs> sometimes they wouldn't really tell you right what they had in mind and they would just say that's not going to work because that that settee is the wrong way around or yeah. <laughs> whatever you know and um sometimes they were very open some some directors are very open to ideas you know we we talked about the introduction to Kessler when 
John Brayson and I were in Brussels, we we went to see the actual building. Yes. Because I'd been very interested in the pilot who had attacked it. And, and it was also at that time in history, it was the beginning of television. They were just experimenting with television. It was the dawn of the guided missile age. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Americans, certainly in this country, were radio control, planning to radio control aircraft full of explosives onto by television onto various sites and this kind of thing. So it was just the beginning of all that kind of thing. Mm. But the Germans were quite way ahead of us on on that. And then the Avenue Louise was quite startling. The the Gestapo headquarters, it wasn't what you'd imagine at all. It was a a, a very, very nice 1930s block of flats. Right. Um, Very modern and whatever, a very tall building and you could still see the pockmarks in the wall where the aircraft had uh, fired at it. Oh okay yeah and I'll just quickly add for listeners so that's at the end of the second series when the pilot uh, comes and shoots up the Gestapo headquarters at Avenue Louise so just to make that connection for the listeners yeah. Yeah yeah Yeah, so yeah that was quite a surprise to see the actual building. Yeah. When we had the episode I remember where for instance talking about moves in in the set we introduced uh, Kessler, who made his first appearance. Yes. And I suggested that we have him with his back to the camera, sitting at a desk, very cold, very quiet, and he would be he would get up and then introduce himself. And they said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that. So that was that was how Kessler was um, directed in the set. And that's such a, an incredible dramatic input because that's so um, in that scene that's so exciting that yeah. you initially overlook him completely, and then he's he's yeah. the man that everyone's been waiting to arrive. Um, yeah. Did you have any other influence in, in, in things like that for sort of the scenes or other sets? Oh yeah, you know because the, the the talking about the moves within the set, the most people make entrances through doors and things like that. You know. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> and and I thought, you know, we can't just have him walk in, open the door and close it and say, I am Ludwig Kessler, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we do it some other way, you know, somehow. Yeah, well, that's that's what you do as a designer. You you draw an outline of the set mm-hmm. and then you, with the director, work out where the furniture will be, having read the script and trying to visualise the movements of it. And the director might say, oh, no, no, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do this, that and the other. Yeah. And And that's a sort of. That's how it goes about. Yeah, that's so interesting, and I think um, I'd I'd never made that connection before. So yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. What are some of the other sets that you designed on Secret Army? I know you worked on the second series as well. Yeah. But yeah. What are some of the other sets? Can you jog my memory? The, the second series. That's it. Albert had um, moved up in the world. Oh, of course. In... So it's the, you were then working on the second iteration of the Condides. Yeah, he, he was a, um, a much more upmarket restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> he left the little old cafe in the side street and so I went to Brussels and I looked at the place that they had found for us the new Candide funnily enough in the side street right next to it there is a little restaurant called a Café Candide restaurant oh, right. Candide I took <laughs> some photographs of it the, 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 that was that that location was found for me it was by I think Paul Annette found that oh, okay if anything it was a very narrow building which rather restricted the the, the set in the studio because the front windows were the things that you would see from the square and they dictated the width of the set that direction you know yeah of Um, course yeah but when when we started I, i remember saying to the lighting man everything should be 15 watt lights everything be dull and very dark 
because the electricity would be probably cut out and fade, you know, during wartime. Mm. And that that's a, so you know that that provided some atmosphere as well. And I'm guessing, would you have designed sets such as the the Colbert household, like Lisa's aunt and uncle's home? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. I did this. <laughs> it's going back a bit now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they might not stand out so much as the the Candide, perhaps. Yeah. I remember, I remember doing um, her, her room, um, which I thought was interesting. It was at the top of a block of flats, you know. Oh. That, that, there still were at that time lots of old buildings in Brussels, mm-hmm. so I could go. In, I stayed in a hotel and looked out on the street onto some very old buildings which would have been there at that time, and I could then take head-on photographs of the, the architecture opposite to make backings for the windows. So yeah, it, it was um, it was just a great experience. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks. How else, as a production designer, how else do you see sets contributing to the overall kind of atmosphere of a show on something like Secret Army? Yeah, I think I think the thing is that if you can get in between the words in in the page, you can create a kind of flavour of the period. And whether it's no matter what period it is or what time, you know, um, if we were doing late 1940s in this country, when it's very austere, everything, uh, you can create that flavour of that time. And it's quite interesting to then say, no computers, telephones look very different. They were rare. Not many people had a telephone, few cars on the road, it, it, almost unrecognisable from nowadays, the, what, what this country looked like. Yeah, yeah. And um, was there anything that you learned during your research that um, just, I don't know, stayed with you or surprised you or really fascinated you? I think I was surprised by everything. <laughs> and, and, and meeting the people there as well. And also working with the RF Museum at Hendon, yes. who were the technical advisors on it. And um, Yeah, do, do uh, share your experiences about this, because again, we chatted briefly before today and you had um, some amazing experiences too. To share. In one episode, we had to do the interior of a crashed Wellington bomber. And the interiors are very complicated because they are, Barnes Wallace designed this uh, geodesic structure, which was then covered, I think, with material. And uh, so that, that to, to make that structure is, is pretty costly for the interior of it. But I went up to, I went up to the Air Force Museum. And I asked if I could go inside this, which normally, you know, is not allowed. But it was good to be able to be guided across the rope and into this aircraft and open the door and climb inside, climb across the, the main spar, which separated the, the both the wings through the fuselage and down to the rear gunner's compartment. And it was unbelievable. It, it was so small and so tight to get in. And I, I found it difficult just to get in there without all the clobber that they carried and the parachutes and the, all their stuff that they had to get in there. And I sat there in the in the semi-darkness at, at the back of the aircraft in, in the museum, sitting in this little place, and I, I kind of had this uh, feeling, a very strange feeling, that there for the grace of God go I. If I'd been born a few years earlier, I would have been, I could have been, yeah. you know, it could have been mine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, and, and these guys were very young. You know, and that in itself was a a remarkable experience which stayed with me. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, My experience uh, isn't quite the same. I wasn't visiting with uh, any kind of uh, design, you know, designing in mind or 
I didn't have the pressure of, you know, replicating anything for audiences, but I went to RAF Hendon um, last week and yeah, it was very powerful. Even just seeing the planes yeah. from the outside and the size of them, or like you say, the size of the rear gunners section on a Lancaster uh, bomber. Yeah. And although I did yeah. sit in a Spitfire, I, I um, had the chance to do yeah. that. Yeah. And like learn how the controls work and things. So. Oh, great. Fantastic. That was great. But I, I echo that you feel like you can get a very good feel of, yeah. you know. They let you do that. They let you sit in one of them. Yeah, well, I think it's how they make a bit of extra money is they, you know, charge a bit extra and then uh, they let you sit in it for 15 minutes. <laughs> 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, and your time's up. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Thanks for your £25, yeah, yeah, pounds, but yeah. I, it was worth it for yeah. me. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And um, did you have a hand in designing the exhibition at RAF Hendon at all? No. Because um, I know when Secret no. Army came out, they had an exhibition yeah. there, didn't they? Uh, I, no, I, I didn't do that. I had, um, that was a designer called Paul Munting. Um, I, I provided, I think, some posters for it that were uh-huh. the sort of things that were round, posted by the Germans around Brussels at the time. And um, did you ever speak to your friends that you made in Belgium? Did they ever see the show and feedback to you? I, do, I, don't, I don't know because I was overtaken by events at the time and I had to move yeah. on to something else. And okay. um uh, so I, I, I assume that they probably would have done because it was very much advertised in. But it was a co-production with Belgian television. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I know it was very popular in um, in Belgium at the yeah. time as well, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. They were a great cast, and uh, I love them. They were very nice people. We got on very well together. Um, mm-hmm. They were very good, and I, I liked um, uh, particularly Albert. He had that wonderful ability to you could look at his face and you could tell what he was thinking uh, on mm. camera that kind of thing, you know, what was going through his mind. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Bernard Hepton, yeah, such yeah. a such a professional and, and outstanding actor. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah. Did you have much contact with the cast then, or did you generally keep quite separate at things like the read-throughs? No, I, I worked mainly with the director, and uh, mm. but the cast, you, you just, okay, you know, if there's any problems, or a chair that you don't like to sit on or whatever, just tell me and then we'll yeah. change it. <laughs> That kind of thing, but you just yeah. very well with them. I think, um, yeah. yeah, difficult. They do a difficult job, and they were they were so so like that, you know, and so concentrating on what they were doing, you know. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and again, just to um, echo what I said earlier, um, I think Andy and I have always noticed, you know, how much everybody cared and the thought and the love that was put into the show from everybody yeah. cast and yeah. crew. So yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And now that I've asked all my Secret Army questions, I just wondered if you had anything else that was a, a real highlight for you to work on during your uh, long career in television. Um, I did thousands of programmes, but the I think Secret Army was one of the, the, the my favourites, to be honest. I did Miss Marple. That was good as well. Yeah, any uh, period, period things were, were my speciality, you know, mm-hmm. 1930s, 1940s, that kind of thing. Yeah, I can see um, I can see the appeal. It would be a very rich era to research. Yeah. And... Well, it was one that I could, bear, I could remember as a child, you see. Um, mm-hmm. Not the 1930s, I couldn't remember. <laughs> the, the 1940s, I remember very well. So, um, sorry, I should know this, but would you um, have memories of the Second World War yourself then? How old would you have been at the time? Well, we, we, we were living in Yorkshire. My father was in the army. Right. And we, um, I, I can remember the... Uh, masses of soldiers that were around here mm-hmm. uh, and there were route marches and I can remember the sound of the aircraft 
lying in bed at night and hearing them going over. Mm-hmm. And I was told by someone that, that, that we should be able to remember the thousand bomber raids, all of them going across. There were many, the area we lived in was, there were many airfields. Mm. And, and the, the, whole, the whole thing was so different. I can remember uh, the town, the small town that we lived in. I can remember seeing men with one sleeve of their suit or jacket oh, okay, yeah. pinned up because there was no arm there. Men on wooden, big wooden crutches, men with faces, burned faces that you were told not to stare at as charms, you know. That was all, that was very much the thing, the, the aftermath of the war. And of course, none of them wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, and you had to really ring out, you know, people, the, the uh, experiences from people as a kid, you know, because you were fascinated by all this kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think when you're a kid, uh, you don't have the knowledge, do you, to necessarily respect, respect those uh, desires of not wanting to talk about it? You might just, yeah, ask anyway. Or Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Kids, kids are very uninhibited when it comes yeah. to questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, one question I just like to throw in is that, is there anything that you would like to mention that I might have not thought to ask anything at all about anything we've covered today? Well, the, I mean, the, the one thing I would mention is that we made everything, we didn't have computer generated images. Uh, we we made everything from hardboard and 2B1, 3B1, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, that it was it was the television was very much a, a homemade job and we we um yeah we we put it together it was very much a, a homemade thing yeah not not like nowadays what you see with where you can actually put building move buildings around put 16th century ships in the background if you want and all this kind of thing that was just coming in when I when I left the yeah business yeah Something's just come to mind, actually, um, because at the same time as Series 1, they were filming a behind-the-scenes documentary about Secret Army. Oh, yes. Do you have any memories of documentary crew being around your, pro- you know, your working processes at that time? Yes, I do. I remember that. It was, it was terrifying. Oh, right. <laughs> it was, uh, you're trying to, you know, the, you're racing against the clock all the time. It, it's all deadlines. Yeah. And, uh, and I can remember very much uh, that the film crew being with us and, you trying to concentrate on, on some furniture that you were selecting to go in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at the same time, conscious of the fact that they were pointing a camera at you, you know. And and the um yes, it was good. We we went to the they came along to the uh, workshops as well and took pictures of the construction crew and whatever you know yeah I think um I have seen some clips online from it and you can see some of your work and and what that looks like which is really lovely to see did you keep any of the diagrams and and drawings from secret army do I have them yeah do you have any any of them I think I've got the construction drawings somewhere yes that's lovely it'll be a a lovely souvenir of that time Yeah. yeah And how does it feel knowing that people are still watching and appreciating Secret Army today? Well, I, I can't believe it. It's wonderful. I mean, it's been good for them, you know. <laughs> I was talking to one of the directors who's now in his 90s. Oh, is that Tristan? Tristan Devere Cole. That's it, yeah. And I was asking him about one of the latter performances and who invented this and who invented that move and whether he'd thought of it or whether the actor had thought of it and um, this kind of thing, you know. And he's 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 very, very good to talk to, Tristan. Yeah, yeah. We ask people who have come on the show to nominate a charity and then what we will do is we will ask listeners to make a donation to that charity as a way to kind of give something back and say thank you. So 
Do you have an, a charity that you would like to nominate today? It would be the um, the Ripon Salvation Army, uh-huh. who run a food bank, and my wife and I sometimes contribute. What well, my wife does a lot, but they run a food bank. They teach people how to use computers and to apply for jobs and this kind of thing, and do an awful lot of good social work in the community that is not very often recognized or seen by people they, they don't yeah they don't publicize their efforts very much but they do a lot of very good work so if anyone wants to make a contribution it will go to for probably to the food bank and things like that and yeah fantastic and what i'll do is um when this um, episode of the podcast comes out, we'll put all the donation details in there so people have it really easily to hand. Marvellous. Thank you very much. What a fantastic cause. Sadly, sadly so needed today, but a, a fantastic cause nevertheless. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Tao. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's wrap up there. And it's been so fantastic to speak to you about Secret Army. I know the listeners will have really enjoyed this as well. So, yeah, a huge thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being so kind. Hi, AJ again here. I'd like to echo my own words of thanks there to Austin Ruddy for generously giving up his time to be a guest on the podcast. If you enjoyed his interview, please consider making a donation of any amount you wish to his chosen charity, which is a local branch of the Salvation Army in Ripon in Yorkshire. The website is www.salvationarmy.org.uk forward slash Ripon, which is spelled R-I-P-O-N. You can also reach them by email at ripon at salvationarmy.org.uk or by calling 01765 692 657. If you do make a donation, please quote Ripon Salvation Army Food Bank. Thank you. Andy and I would also like to thank Austin Ruddy Jr. for helping us to make contact with his father. Thank you for listening to Down the Line. Andy and AJ will be back with another episode in two weeks' time.